Well, this morning, I want us, this morning and Wednesday night, to consider the question, what is a biblical church? What is a biblical church? We're just going to spend a couple weeks talking about one one way to answer that question, but, but I want you to think about that. I want you to ponder that particular question. And after we finish these couple sessions, then beginning next Sunday, Lord willing, I'll begin a study in the book of Titus on Sunday mornings, and then a week from Wednesday, we'll resume our Route 66 series going through the books of the Bible on Wednesday night. So that's kind of a little roadmap to where we're headed, but... But for this morning, I want you to ponder the question, what is a biblical church? What constitutes a church that is approved of by the Lord of the church, the Lord Jesus Christ? And for that, I would like you to turn to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. We'll look at verses 37 through 42 over our next couple of times together. Let me read the text for us, and then we'll answer this question. Now, when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. And with many other words, he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. So then those who had received his word were baptized, and that day they were added. They were added about 3,000 souls. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. When I ask that question, what is a biblical church? There are many correct answers to this question. This morning, I simply want to consider the most fundamental element of a biblical church. That is, that a biblical church, first and foremost, and most essentially, is a converted church, a converted church, a body of people who have repented of their sins and surrendered their lives to Christ as as Lord and Savior. Now, you may be thinking, well, of course, that goes without saying. Those who are a part of the church are truly converted individuals. And you're right in your assessment that it should go without saying that the church is comprised, is believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. But unfortunately, there are many churches today in so-called evangelicalism and, and even some in sound theological Bible churches who associate with the church and even consider themselves Christians but have never truly been converted. Aside from the fact that Jesus states in Matthew that There will always be tares amongst the wheat and goats amongst the sheep until he returns. I have experienced this fact as a glaring reality throughout the many years that I have been in ministry. 
For several years prior to attending seminary, I was a youth pastor, and I would watch students come and profess Christ and then leave and disappear, and as we would reach out to them, we'd find out that they were far from Christ and really had no interest in Christ and proved themselves to be unregenerate and unconverted. Same thing happened when I was in seminary as a youth pastor at a church out there. And people I can think of on the top of my mind that would come and were apart, would get involved quickly, but then would disappear and wouldn't hear from them. We couldn't find them and figure out that they really wanted nothing to do with the church and prove themselves to be unconverted. I watched this happen as I was a senior pastor in Kansas with a couple that we ended up having to discipline out of the church and just watching the reality of the fact that there are those who think themselves to be Christians but do not have the Holy Spirit in them and eventually walk away from the church. Over the last five years, I've watched that happen here. People that you know, people that you have been associated with who profess the name of Christ, who are now living in blatant, open sin and have rejected the gospel and have rejected the church because they were never truly converted. They wanted to come and participate and be a part of everything that happens in the local assembly, which is a wonderful thing, but, but they were never indwelt by the Holy Spirit. They'd never come to faith in Jesus Christ. And so they would have considered themselves as part of the church, but they were not part of the church. Because a biblical church consists of truly converted individuals. The church is full of people who profess Christ and claim. The entire pastoral staff, even here at Countryside. We want the gospel to be so clear and understood in the hearts and minds of our people that our lives radiate with the gospel. That we are consumed by it, that we are saturated with it. I want the church not to be known as a place of tradition or of personal tastes or of preferences or of religious activity or of rules and regulations, but rather I want our church to be known as a gospel-centric church because the gospel not only justifies, it sanctifies. We don't need to hear it just once and then never again. It must permeate our preaching and our teaching and our Bible studies and our children's programs, our times of prayer and times of fellowship because the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. The message of the sin-removing, wrath-absorbing, blood-soaked substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ must be proclaimed from every ministry of the church. Why? Because we want a truly biblical church, and a biblical church is first and foremost a converted church. 
With this in mind, I want to take us back nearly 2,000 years ago this morning to the days of the early church. In fact, the day that these events took place marks the beginning of the church, the day of Pentecost. I want to draw our attention to a text where the author Luke focuses on this absolutely essential ingredient of conversion. And in the text that I read, it clearly shows us three realities concerning conversion that should compel us to be thoroughly gospel-centered as a church. Three realities concerning conversion that should compel us to be thoroughly gospel-centered as a church. And that first reality is found there in verse 37, and it is this, it is the epicenter of true conversion. The epicenter of true conversion. Look again at verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart, said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brethren, what shall we do? And when you think of an epicenter, your mind probably turns to thinking of an earthquake. When an earthquake is measured, when it is being figured out, they are looking for the focal point. They are looking for the starting point, the, the focus or, or the source of what caused the earth to quake in the way that it did. That is what an epicenter is. It is the, the starting point, the source, the focus. In fact, this is a place on the earth's surface right above the point in the crust where the seismic rupture begins. That is the focal point of, of the earthquake. Everything else expands from there, and such is the case with conversion. The focal point of conversion is described by the words there in verse 37 that they were pierced to the heart. Now before we examine that further, we need to understand what led these people to being pierced to the heart. Look at the beginning of verse 37 again. Now when they heard this, heard what? Well, that word now is transitioning this narrative from Peter's sermon to the response of the audience to that sermon. As I mentioned just a moment ago, this was the day of Pentecost. If you begin reading in chapter 2, you see that the Holy Spirit came down upon this group of believers in the city of Jerusalem. And they began to speak in various tongues, various languages, as, as those who were around and began to hear what was going on could hear the gospel preached in their the church. And so after these events took place, Walking through verse 13, Peter then begins to preach a sermon, a magnificent, famous sermon that God used to open the people's eyes to the person and work of Jesus Christ. And he did this by expositing a passage from Joel and by expositing a couple of passages from the Psalms. And as he works through those texts, he comes to verse 22 in chapter 2 and says, Men of Israel, listen to these words. 
Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know, this man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. This was the purpose of Peter's sermon. He wanted them to understand that the Old Testament prophesied concerning this Christ and that this very Christ, who they had just put to death a couple months earlier, was the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He had now been raised from the dead. He had now ascended to the right hand of the throne of his father. And as Peter goes through and exposes these texts, all pointing to the person and work of Jesus Christ, he comes to the end of verse 36, where we find the final point of Peter's exposition. It says, Therefore, here's the conclusion, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. He ends that verse with a, with a jab of such conviction. This Jesus whom you have crucified. Several thousand people heard this message that day. And as Peter got to the end of his sermon and prodded at their hearts with that particular jab of relating the reality to them that they were the reason that Christ had been crucified. That brings us then to the what I have labeled the epicenter of true conversion. In verse 37, now when they heard this, when they heard those words, those convicting, powerful words, that stab to the heart, it says that they were pierced. That is to say that they were, they were stung or, or they were stunned. This was, this was an emotional sharp pain associated with, with anxiety or remorse. You see, Peter's sermon had been a convincing argument that had now backed them into a corner, causing their consciences to be wrought with guilt and their hearts to be overwhelmed by what Christ had truly done for them and for who he truly was. The work of the Spirit through the Word of God had taken them from their initial wondering concerning the events earlier. Verse 12 said, And they all continued in amazement and great perplexity, saying to one another, What does this mean? After, after the, the Holy Spirit came down, they began speaking in all these various languages. They, they were amazed and they didn't know what it meant. And now, after this sermon, after this explanation by Peter concerning the person and work of Jesus Christ, they moved from that initial wondering concerning the events to a point of conviction concerning the truth. And then we see the response to that conviction. This is the place where conversion has to start. A deep sense of conviction over sin brought on by the proclamation of the truth. You see, for the church to be a truly converted group of people Every single person in that church has had to come to the point where they have been pierced to the heart concerning their sin. 
concerning their guilt before a holy God, that they bear the weight of that sin and that guilt. If a person doesn't come to a place where they understand their sin before a holy God, then they will never truly be converted. This is absolutely essential. This brings to mind a situation that I found myself in when I was in seminary. I was meeting with one of my my leaders of our high school ministry and we were sitting at a restaurant and we were talking about the things of the Lord, talking about what was going on in his life and talking about what was going on in our church and we're pretty close quarters with other folks. When you're in California, you're pretty close quarters with every folk. And so we were really, really close and this lady just heard our conversation began talking to us. And so obviously that opened up an opportunity for the gospel because what she was saying, she she was kind of wanting clarity on what we were talking about as we were talking about the gospel. And, and so went on to explain the gospel to her. And as we really honed in on owning your sin and thinking about who you are before a holy God, you could see this demeanor in her face change. She became excessively angry. To the point where we basically had to leave because a yelling match broke out. We weren't yelling. She was yelling at us. And we were sitting there saying, this is just what the Bible says. And she said, she said we have to get rid of sin. We can't be telling people that they're sinners. You've got to eliminate that from your vocabulary if you're, if you're going to be a good Christian. <laughs> we were like, What? That's the opposite of what the Bible says. And so as we left there with her yelling at us, we were both struck with the reality that we as humans do not want to come to grips with this fact. Those 3,000 souls, as it says there at the end of verse 41, who were converted that day, at that moment when Peter preached to them the truth about Christ and that they were sinners before a holy God. They were pierced to the heart concerning their guilt of that sin. It is the Holy Spirit who evokes this response in a person. And the response, you see that in verse 37, was a cry of desperation and anguish. What shall we do? What shall we do? They were overwhelmed with this truth. Yes, it was us. We are responsible for sending Christ to the cross. And yes, clearly he was the one prophesied in the Old Testament. It's a little point of application. We need to be continually overwhelmed with the truth and seek to get the truth to others so that the Holy Spirit will overwhelm and convict them of the truth. These folks were overwhelmed. If we want to be a biblical church and we want converted people in our church, we must never water down our confrontation of sin by use of the scriptures. We must never cease to proclaim that to be converted, you must be born again by the Spirit of God. You must be given life. Your sin must be dealt with. That piercing 
by the Spirit is, is, essent, is absolutely essential to salvation. Without it, you have salvation on man's terms. Right? I can come to God however I wish, in whatever way I want to, and I can be made right with him. That's so much of what the world thinks. It's unfortunately so much of what the quasi-church thinks. Is that I can come to God on my terms. I set the standard. He will let me into heaven, and I will be fine. Nope. Your soul must be gripped with the reality of your sin by the preaching of the truth of the gospel. And you must come to grips with the reality that you stand completely and totally in judgment before a holy God. That is the epicenter of true conversion. This leads to a second reality concerning conversion, which I have labeled the exclusivity of true conversion. The exclusivity of true conversion. Notice Peter's response to their question. As they said, what shall we do? Peter says, repent and be baptized, each one of you, for the forgiveness of your sins. To repent, this this is a command for the individual to, to change their mind, their thought process, and their will, which leads to a change of action. It is a determined change of direction in your heart. This change includes a confession of sin and and a surrender of the will to the Lord Jesus Christ in faith. It's not just a change of mind about who Jesus is. Some people have muddied up that truth. No, this is a complete turning from sin and an embracing of Jesus Christ as Lord. It's not a perfect turning. We don't want to confuse that. We don't want to say that somehow we earn our salvation by turning away from our sin. That's not what repentance is. Repentance is brought on by the Holy Spirit as we see our sin and we say, I want no more of that. We see our life and we say, I'm no longer going to follow my own direction to try and get to God. We look at the world and we say, nope, they're going the wrong way. And we say, no, I'm going to turn to Christ. That's what repentance is. It's turning away. And then the rest of your life You live a lifestyle of repentance as God changes you from the inside out through his spirit, through his word. And so it is that that change of thought process, that change of direction. And that change, that turning is a turning to Christ. And connected with that repentance is the command to be baptized as well. This has caused great confusion in the church and has led to many heretical teachings concerning how a person is saved. There are people who believe that a person, in order for a person to get to heaven, they must repent, as we would say, but then they also must be baptized with water. They must be be dunked or be sprinkled by water in order to secure that salvation. And they look at texts like this, and that's how they come to this interpretation. So, When we come to a text like this, which is, at first glance, it seems a little bit contradictory, we must examine two main things. First of all, we must examine the immediate context. And secondly, we must examine the greater theological context of the Bible. 
If you think about the greater theological context of the Bible, you read from cover to cover, you understand that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. It's prophesied about in the Old Testament. It's proclaimed by Christ in the Gospels. And then the New Testament writers of the epistles spell that out and explain that and expound upon that. And Paul says it abundantly clearly there in Ephesians chapter 2, right? For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of yourselves. This is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. The greater theological context of the scriptures proclaim this clearly. Concerning the immediate context, we need to understand what Peter was saying here. These Jews understood baptism in terms of identification. You see, there was a mixture, obviously, <coughs> in Jerusalem of, uh, of Gentiles and Jews. And when a Gentile would convert to Judaism, they were called Gentile proselytes. And they would convert to Judaism, and they were then immediately baptized to show that they had converted from their pagan Gentile ways to Judaism. That was how they understood baptism. So in their culture, they understood baptism to indicate association, but not as the cause of the new association. It's not how they understood baptism. But also, we need to note some distinctions that would have caused these Jews who Peter was talking to to be shocked because they understood Baptism in this sense uh, as identification, which we need to understand it as, and we'll talk about that in just a second. But we also need to understand some distinctions here. Peter, there in verse 38, calls for individual baptism as opposed to the collective repentance of Jewish proselytes. You see, natural Jews weren't baptized, but Peter was calling them to now associate with Christ and not the religion of Judaism. You see, it was Gentiles, when they came to the Jewish religion, who would be baptized to show their new identification. But natural Jews would never think about that. They were already associated with Judaism. And so Peter here, as he calls out to these Jews who have just been pierced to the heart by this preaching of Christ, they are no doubt now shocked. Because Peter is telling them, listen, salvation in Christ alone is an individual response. He's telling them that no family, no, no corporate relationships can save you. Just because you are a Jew by birth doesn't mean you are right with God. And that's so important for us to understand, isn't it? You may come from an unbelievable family. A family who loves Christ, who worships Christ, who has had you in church from the day that you were born. The reality is, you're no more a Christian than the drunk homeless person on the street because of that reality. Just because you grow up in a family that loves Christ doesn't mean you love Christ. Just because you grow up in a family who worships God corporately with the people of God doesn't mean you are part of the people of God. Salvation is an individual 
experience that every individual must experience. It's not based on who you associate with. It's not based on what family you were born into. You are not right with God because your family is right with God. You are not right with God because the people you hang out with are right with God. You are not right with God because your church preaches the God of the Bible. That's what Peter was telling these Jews. You're not right with God because you are a Jew. You must repent and be baptized, each one of you, for the forgiveness of your sins. You must identify now as a Christian. You must turn from your sin, and to these Jews, you must turn of your turn from your faith and your works-based system in Judaism, and you must turn to the living and true God, Jesus Christ. They were to be baptized in the name of Jesus. This was, this was an outward sign of an inward transformation. If you come to our baptism services here, which we have about yeah, four or five times a year here at our church, and they're wonderful, and I encourage you definitely to come. They're usually on Sunday nights. They're some of the best services we, we get to participate in as we listen to these testimonies of individuals who God has saved. But you will always, always, always hear Pastor Tom say that this water, this dunking, this saves no one. Them coming in and going down and coming up, it doesn't do anything inwardly. This is simply an outward sign of the inward transformation that has been brought about by the Spirit of God taking the Word of God and changing their hearts. This is a new identity. This is a new association. That's why we get baptized. We are now associating with the people of God. We're not doing it to earn salvation because that's impossible. Our works are as filthy rags before God. But we get baptized to now show our new identity with the people of God and the God of the Scriptures. We have been born again. That We have been saved by grace through faith. Now conversion, they were immediately baptized to show their new association. As the early church was being structured and being built, people were choosing sides. This hit Jerusalem and then the surrounding regions by storm. I mean, you could see that as verse 41 says that 3,000 souls were saved that day. There wasn't a soul in Jerusalem who didn't know what was going on. They may have not understood what was going on, but they knew something was happening. And so they were converted as they were pierced to the heart. They came to salvation in Christ, and immediately they were baptized and added to the church. Immediately a line was drawn in the sand. They now associated with the church. They no longer belonged to the, to the ways of Judaism. They no longer uh, belonged. These Gentiles no longer belonged to their pagan ways. Peter is not saying in his sermon that water baptism in any way saves, but it is the physical demonstration of the newfound inward reality. That's what baptism is. So when a person repents and calls upon Christ, they are forgiven, and that is then symbolized in baptism. That's why we don't just bring people into the water and then send them out, maybe put their name on the screen. That's why they stand there 
for three to five minutes and explain why they're in that water, that God has saved them supernaturally by the power of the gospel. It is important to note that because of what baptism represents, that the New Testament doesn't entertain the idea of an unbaptized Christian. Many of you have been baptized, and it's been such a blessing to hear your testimonies. Such a blessing to see what God is doing in our midst. But there are still some of you who haven't been baptized. And if we were to have a conversation, you claim Christ. You believe in him. You've trusted in him. You've turned from your sin. Listen, the New Testament doesn't entertain the idea of an unbaptized Christian. It's time to think about the reality of who you identify with. It was so quick to happen in the New Testament church that there was conversion and then there was baptism and then they were associated, they were added to the church. We need to think about that very, very carefully. And if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you need to be baptized. People need to understand who you associate with and baptism serves as a representation to show that. Notice then verse 38, that this repentance brings forgiveness of sin. It, it cancels the debt of sin. Think about that in terms of, of this text specifically. Jews who had just crucified Jesus could now receive forgiveness from Jesus. So as they were pierced to the heart concerning this man who they had taken to the cross, Peter is saying, this man whom you crucified is Christ and Lord, and you can find forgiveness in him. Another distinction would be the link of repentance to receiving the gift of the Holy Spirit. Remember that, that this had just happened a few hours before Peter and the other apostles, to Peter and the other apostles. Upon genuine repentance, beginning then on the day of Pentecost, a person would be indwelt and sealed by the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. And it took a little bit for this to unfold as the Samaritans then received the Spirit and, and the Gentiles received the Spirit. But, but about midway through the book of Acts, this was how God was, was working, is that every converted person, every person who came to Christ through repentance and faith would then receive the Holy Spirit. They would be indwelled by the Holy Spirit. That means, that means that they would be sealed until the day of redemption. And they were then guaranteed that when they stand before God, they would be taken to Him. And when God looked at them, and they stood before him, the Spirit would have sealed them because of their relationship with Christ. <clears throat> it means that they were then empowered to live a victorious life. It means that they were then empowered to be a bold witness. It means that they were then empowered to be led by the Spirit to walk in holiness. Note that 
this here is not talking about the gifts given by the Spirit for the edification of the church, but, but this is the Holy Spirit himself. As a Christian. I mean, just think about the battles that we face as believers. As believers. If you're here this morning and you're not in Christ, you don't have the Holy Spirit. You need to come to Christ. You need to turn from your sin and place your faith and trust in Him for salvation. But as a Christian, can you imagine come to God on His terms, but then not having the Holy Spirit to empower you in this life? Life's already so difficult. Walking in holiness is already a bear at times. But being a bold witness, hard. Without the Holy Spirit, absolutely impossible. And so this was a glorious day. This was a glorious day. These, these, these people received forgiveness from their sins, so they were made right with God, and they received the Holy Spirit. Notice verse 39, that for those who repent, it is promised by the almighty king of the universe that they would receive the forgiveness of sin and the Holy Spirit. This was promised. For the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off. He offers the gospel to all the Jews who were present and indicates here the inclusion of the Gentiles as well. As he uses that phrase, all who are far off. The gospel message is for all to hear. We are to get it out to everyone. The church is not the we are satisfied with who we are mentality. The church is not the us for and no more mentality. The church is not the exclusive country club mentality. We hold in our grasps the key to the promise of forgiveness of sin and gift of the Holy Spirit. And we must therefore step out of our comfort zones to the world at large who is headed for hell. And as difficult as that can be at times to, to step out of our comfort zones with the gospel, you know what is most exciting about it? Is that this is the means which God uses to call his elect unto himself. Look at the end of verse 39. Again, he says, for the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off. As many as the Lord our God will call to himself. Listen, we get the privilege of being a part of God's program of bringing souls to him. Because Christ has promised to build his church, we have the promise of God that as we faithfully get the gospel out to every creature, God will save everyone who he intended to save. And here we see the tension of the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man. Every person must obey the demands of the gospel to repent and believe. Again, as we talked about just a moment ago, this is an individual thing that each person must do. So man must obey the demands of the gospel. But we know from Ephesians 2 that that too is a gift of God. That that faith that we place in Christ is given to us by God. 
And then as we cry out, you must obey the gospel, you must repent and believe, we see that God is then responsible for drawing all his elect unto himself. You see, conversion is exclusive to those whom the Father draws. This call in verse 39 is a summons by the king of the universe. And the power of this call guarantees a response on the part of the hearers and as a result calls them out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his glorious son. And this guarantee is then seen in Romans chapter 8 verse 30 is all who are called are then justified and all who are justified are then glorified. The effectual call that verse 39 is talking about is final. Grudem defines this call as an act of God the Father speaking through the human proclamation of the gospel in which he summons people to himself in such a way that they respond in saving faith. You see, as the gospel is proclaimed, God will continue to call dead sinners unto himself. You are sitting here this morning in Christ only because God has summoned you. Only because God has called you in an effectual way, in a way that drew you out of the muck and mire of your sin and showed you the glorious person of Christ and his work upon the cross and granted you then repentance and faith in that person. It's the only reason you're here in Christ this morning because the Father has effectually called you. And so Peter, after saying this, after explaining this in verse 39, that the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, and that is only because the Lord our God calls those to himself who the gospel is preached to. Peter then, in verse 40, continually pleads with all who are listening to be saved from this perverse generation. He continually was bringing the truth of the gospel to bear on the lives of these people. Friends, we must, we must plead with the gospel. We must compel those whom we have the opportunity to, opportunity to evangelize with the gospel of Jesus Christ. That he came to earth and lived a perfect life as the God-man and died a substitutionary death on behalf of us absorbing the full wrath of the Father against sin. And that he rose again on the third day, proving that his sacrifice was accepted by his Father. His death and resurrection purchased our redemption by washing away our debt of sin. Friends, our hearts should be the same as Spurgeon's on this matter, who said, I'm sure you've heard this before, but it's very compelling. He said, if sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. And if they perish, let them perish with our arms wrapped about their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions and let not one go unwarned and unprayed for. Peter's commands... Peter commands as we must command, be saved. Be saved. 
our evangelism must always end with this command to come to Christ as, as Peter's did there in verse 40. Conversion is exclusive to those who hear and obey the gospel. We've seen the epicenter of true conversion, that they were pierced to the heart. We've seen the exclusivity of conversion, that is, those who repent and are forgiven as ones who have been called out by God effectually. And the third reality that I'll give you and we'll leave to look at Wednesday night is this. It is the evidence of true conversion. We'll see that in verses 41 through 42. So what do we do with this that we have received today in terms of thinking about a biblical church? Well, first of all, I believe the command that Paul gives the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 13 is in order when he says, Attest yourselves, examine yourselves to see that you are in the faith. There are so many people who play church. There are so many people who think they're Christians just because of their association with the church. Paul tells the Corinthians at the end of that letter, he says, Listen, you've got to test yourselves. You gotta look at your life, you gotta look at what you believe. You gotta look at what you're trusting in. You gotta look at the fruits, the evidences in your life. You gotta look at those things and and make a determination of whether or not those evidences look like love for Jesus. Are these evidences coming out of a genuine heart of love for Jesus? And so we have to do that. If we want to be a biblical church, first and foremost, we have to be a converted church. And for people to be converted, they must understand the truth of the gospel. And so it's important that we test ourselves, examine ourselves, and see if we are in the faith. And second, if we are a converted church, then we need to be gospel-centric in all that we do. You guys are part of an awesome church. (laughs) Countryside is thoroughly gospel-centric. Are you involving yourselves in that? Are you finding opportunities within the ministries that this church has to offer to proclaim the gospel? We are to do that. We are to be an extension of this church to the people that we come in contact with, to the fellow students that you go to school with, to those who you work with, to those family members who don't know Christ. You are an extension of the truth of the gospel to them from this church. It's important that we embrace that. It's also important that we live the gospel by walking worthy of the calling that we have received. If we are going to be gospel-centric in the sense that we are communicating the gospel with those who desperately need to hear it, then our lives must reflect the reality that we believe the gospel ourselves. Right? There's, There's nothing worse than a hypocrite. We always feel that when we do something hypocritical in our lives, don't we? 
If you're going to be someone who's proclaiming the gospel, your life better be walking worthy of the gospel. We need to be intentional about finding ways to get the gospel to this depraved society around us. And that's, that's the challenge that we find in this text. It's a challenge that we find as those who are a part of a biblical church and want to be a part of a biblical church and want to be, want to be biblical Christians is that we are to be intentional about the truth of this message that has changed our lives. We need to be saturated with the gospel and we need to saturate those in our sphere of influence with the gospel. And you know what? God has promised that every person he has intended to save, he will draw to himself as we get the gospel out to them. And he will continue to build his true church. We'll talk about that third uh, element on Wednesday. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for our time this morning to reflect on the reality of conversion. To look back at what you did several thousand years ago on the day of Pentecost as as the gospel was preached through the mouth of Peter and as you then supernaturally brought about conviction of sin and regeneration in their hearts and granted them repentance and faith and they turned to this one whom they crucified and found forgiveness of sin. Father, may, may we check our own hearts and souls and make sure that we know this one and then may we be thoroughly engaged with being gospel-centric in all of the ministries in the life of our church and as an expansion of our church to the community around us. Lord, we love you. We thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your salvation that you give to us in Christ. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for our time this morning. In Christ's name, amen.